This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Miles of Silla Report. Silla Report is a media channel, a website, YouTube, all about tracking small arms across the world. So imagine a certain type of rifle that's only made in Russia turns up in Afghanistan. Silla Report tracks it, finds out how it got there. It's very interesting and they document the history behind a lot of weapons that you will see on the battlefield. This episode is sponsored by DefensePost.com, check them out. And if you want extra content from Popular Front, such as bonus episodes, video content, go to patreon.com slash popularfront. Also, I just wanted to say thank you very much to the listeners because we've just hit 40,000 unique downloads in the three months since we started, which I think is pretty good. Well, I guess maybe you can explain what is Salah Report and why did you start it? Um, so Sila Report, the, the big deal behind Sila Report, right? So first of all, the word Sila. Uh, Sila means weapon in Turkish, in Arabic, in Farsi, and in Pashto. And the way it's spelled S-I-L-A-H is how it's spelled in modern-day Turkish. And the whole, the whole point behind Sila Report is essentially trying to just create a sort of repository, community of researchers, of news to do with both contemporary and historical small arms within the Middle East, North Africa, and Central Asian regions. And the point behind all this is because it doesn't really exist. Um, and I'll tell you more about how that, how that came to be and why I feel there's a big need for this. And essentially it stems from a lot of my reporting that initially starts off, you know, I've written for the Firearm Blog, written for... Um, Small Arms Review, Small Arms Defense Journal, a couple other articles as well, um, a couple other stuff in the gun industry. Basically, I write about historical small arms, I write about contemporary military, contemporary law enforcement stuff. And what I was noticing is that as I sort of progressed, you know, I, I had my deployments in Afghanistan, I got out, I went to school, I was very fascinated by everything Afghan related. I studied Pashto and Farsi at Indiana University, majoring in Central Eurasian Studies. Like, the, this part of the world really fascinated me. And as I was getting more and more into gun writing and more and more about it, you know, the small arms in these regions fascinated me and I would continually want to write about them. And I, what I often found is that there'd be gun guys who would know a lot about the weapon systems, and, but they wouldn't know any of the other cultural, religious, or historical contexts of the areas that they were looking at. But then on the opposite end, we had you know, reporters, academics, researchers, what have you, who knew the, who understood whether they be Western, they, whether they be from MENA or from Central Asia, who understood the, you know, they understood a lot about Islam, they understood a lot about some of the, the historical intricacies of these areas, but they'd look at something like an RPG or an AK-47 and they'd say, oh, that's just an AK. Whereas the gun guys would say that's not just an AK, that is a you know Hungarian AMD type type uh, an AMD 65, and what's it doing here? So the gun guys couldn't answer the questions of well, what's it doing here? They could just say the technical aspects of oh yeah, that's an AMD 65. Well, what what how what is it? How did it get here? What how, what's going on here? Well, I don't know. I don't know anything about that country. I don't even know how to say a single word in Arabic or whatever they say. Whereas then the other side of the coin, the researchers, the academics and everything, they'd look at these firearms and it wouldn't be anything to them. They wouldn't, they wouldn't see any purpose into why you know, they were important. It was just a gun. If anything, this was, you know, if, you know, a lot of these guys sometimes are far left-leaning and they'd say, oh, yeah, it's just it's a horrible tool of war. 
Whereas I'm looking at the middle approach. I'm looking at looking at the small arms, looking at the small arms and light weapons in these areas, and I'm looking at it and say, look, this isn't just a Hungarian AMD 65 or a 63. This has a lot of history connected to it because looking at the firearms, look at the small, looking at the small arms in these regions, the small arms tell the story and the history of the region, and they also have a lot of cultural implications as well. I mean, you can look at the various small arms that are being used and being sold in gun sales in Iraq or in Morocco or in Algeria, um, anywhere, and you can see the history of the region of different allies, of shifting allies. And I'll use the example of you know the M1 Grand. We see, you know, this is a perfect example in that, uh, you know, the gun guys will say, oh, like, U.S. troops in Afghanistan and Iraq are, you know, finding M1 grants in weapons caches. And the gun guys just look at that and they say, oh, okay, whatever, it's just an M1 grant. Like, I can't tell you anything more about how it got there. Well, the M1 grant, we provided Iran something like 160,000 M1s in the 1960s because the United States was allied with Iran in the 60s. And as time progressed, it got replaced by the G3, and we see them one being replaced by the G3, and then in the Iran-Iraq war, them one comes back up, and we can see women defense units in the Iran-Iraq war who are armed with M1 grants, because this was a rear echelon support unit that was armed with whatever was left, because all the G3s and AKs had to go to the front lines. And then later on, we see M1s being uh, caught with smugglers and hunters and stuff in modern-day Iran today, and then that's how we see M1s showing up in weapon caches that insurgents are using. They're not actually using them very much. They're more just showing up in uh, caches and what have you. But that explains the story of how the M1, a, a, which is you know, a very iconic, very American small arm, that you know, greatest battle implant ever devised in the words of George Patton, um, part of the Second World War, whatever you want to describe it as, um, that's how we see this in very American small arm ending up in Afghanistan and in Iraq as well. And so that's a smidgen of what we're all about. And we go from contemporary stuff to historical stuff. Our, the website, you know, we kind, of, we kind of start in early 1800s, late 1800s, and then go until today. So basically, Salah Report, you could say, is telling the story of how these weapons got here, there, and everywhere. Exactly. It's t that, and that's one facet. Of, what's one facet of it? It's telling that story of how it got here, and it's and it's looking at it from okay. You know, it's important to see the technical side of things, but it's also important to know the historical, the religious side of things because that's the other side of the story. And oftentimes, with a lot of these weapons, you don't you you need both sides of the story to understand their context and why they're important, why they exist, why they're being used. Um, and if you don't have both sides, you're only getting one half of it. And you, you do a lot on the ground as well, right? You're not just um, researching online. You actually travel around and do these things. You know, I've seen a few of your videos. Yeah, so most, most recently on the ground work for me has been, um, been in Kabul, in Afghanistan. Um, first, primarily as, you know, military uh, back in 2011, 2014, but that was before any of this started. But most recently, I spent a couple months in Kabul, and I was working at a tech company there, and of course, what I do? Well, I got into researching the small arms there, and I got into researching um, the shops, some of the history of some of the local Afghan Martini Henrys um, that were produced in Kabul, and trying to go around and trying to put pieces to this puzzle that a lot of folks, um, especially especially a lot of Afghans, don't really care about or don't 
seem to look into as much as uh, as Western researchers are. And maybe you can talk a little bit more about that. I saw the video where you're talking about the small arms in Afghanistan, uh, and you went to the, the the markets and all of that stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. So I went to a couple different markets. One of the main one of the markets I went to was sort of the antique side, and I went into some of these antique markets and went in and saw exactly what they had. And some of it, you know. Um, it spans about 100, 150 years of, of Afghan history, um, and then you see a lot of uh, you know, remnants from the Second Anglo-Afghan War, from the Third Anglo-Afghan War, um, going back there. Of course, in the antique markets, you don't see anything for sale over, I'd say, overproduced over about 1920s. No bolt-action rifles are really for sale in the antique markets. That's old. So you're finding, like, what, like, Mausers and, like, old-school weapons? Yeah, so not Mausers particularly, but just to go off the top of my head, Martini Henrys are a big, big deal. Um, tons of Martini Henrys. In fact, part of a recent project that I'm a part of um, with Armament Research Services, we cataloged about uh, 60 to 90 Martini Henrys in one shop. What, what, what the hell? Like, what, what's a Martini Henry? It sounds like the softest weapon ever. So a, a Martini Henry is a British single shot breech loading design chambered in uh, five, chambered in later in 303. It was early chambered in 450 Martini Henry. Um, it was 577 slash 450. And it was introduced in the late 1800s. And this is the gun, if you've ever seen Zulu Wars, if you've ever seen anything to do with the Zulu conflict and uh, Rourke's Drift and stuff like that, that's the gun that you see the British soldiers have. You load it with a lever, you push around it, and then you shoot it, and then you uh, load the next round, single shot. Um, it's very rugged, very can be very reliable until it heats up, as the British soldiers found out in uh, Sudan. Um, but it is a British service rifle of the late 1800s, and a ton of other countries, a couple of other countries adopted it and even uh, manufactured it, to include Afghanistan. Um, uh, under the Emir in the late 1800s, there was an entire factory that produced Martini Henrys based on uh, British patents and British designs. And that's something that's very little known about. Because you get people who see the handmade stuff in Dar Adam Khel in Pakistan, in the uh, Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, and that's interesting. But people often see the Martini Henrys coming out of Kabul and they label them as, oh, this is probably just some handmade crap from next door. And it's not. It's actually, it was actually a whole factory that, was, uh, that still exists today um, that we were able to uncover and able to find, find the exact location of it today. Wait, wait, it's still in operation? It is not in operation making rifles anymore, but the factory still exists. The building still exists. The compound is still there. And we were able to do this by looking at old primary documents and seeing, you know, descriptions about 100 years ago saying, you know, the Emir's factory is between these two rivers at the southern portion of the city between uh, Kolhe Azmai and it wasn't Kolhe Television at, the, at that time, but it was another mountain. And I was able to find a picture 100 years ago and actually go to where that picture was taken and climb a hill and uh, take a picture of, of the same location. So we have, you know, a before and then picture of the factory. That's very cool. I love this stuff. Have you ever found something whilst you know doing your reporting for Salah Report where you've just thought, "How the hell did this get here? I have no idea." There's, I'd say, I'd say that happens on a daily basis with Salah Report. Yeah, we you see stuff and you're just like, 
how did this get here? I mean, you see things like, and, and this is sort of, and this is sort of the mystique that I'm trying to counter, right? Because this is the gun guy approach to it. Because the gun guy sees a Mauser C96, which is you know a hundred year old German semi-automatic pistol that was you see it in the it's very iconic. You see it in the movies all the time. The, a gun guy sees a Mauser C96 for uh, for sale on a gun market, on a modern day gun market in Iraq or in Yemen. And he says, what? How did that get there? And then what I'm trying to get into is like, well, let's explain how it got here. Let's explain the alliances and who was allied with whom 100 years ago and why it would make complete sense for a Mauser C96 to be sold to the Sultan of Oman. Or, okay, this so, so a perfect example, right? This is, this is the kind of stuff that um, is really neat. So there's, I came across a, um, an original, it was a Sudanese contract, AR-10. And the Sudanese Contra, the AR-10 is you know, famous in history, whatever. Um, Eugene Stoner, you know, the design was sold by Arte Ingelow in Holland, which sold AR-10s. The largest amount that was sold, I think it was about 7,000 rifles, were sold to Sudan in the 19, early 1960s, I want to say. And we know that they were sold to Sudan, and that was the largest amount of AR-10s, original AR-10s, ever made and ever sold at the time. It was a very big sale, and it's very, the Sudanese version is known as, you know, the Sudanese contract, because they're the, they're the most prolific of the, AR, of the early AR-10s. So I come across this um, picture of a Sudanese contract, AR-10, in Yemen. Um, not for sale, just, you know, a guy with a picture on Facebook saying, you know, this is me and my buddy out in near Amman or something. And I see this and this is like mind blowing. This is an original AR-10, you know, a very prolific, very fascinating weapon system that changed uh, infantry small arms from the 1960s onwards. And this is in Yemen just sitting there. And then you sort of connect the dots and how this got there. Well, it's definitely a Sudanese contract. And then you did, I did a little more research. And I found in a book by Sam Cummings um, about Sam Cummings, and Sam Cummings was this crazy prolific uh, small arms um, kind of you can call him the merchant. Some people have called him the Merchant of Death, um, but uh, a dealer back in the '60s, '70s, and I think he died in the late '80s. Um, but if you've seen Lord of War, that is Sam Cummings. Like that's not who he, the Lord of War is based on, but that's who he was. He was wheeling and dealing, you know, selling stuff to one force that was fighting another force, and he sold stuff to them. Very interesting character, and in that book it says Sam Cummings was the guy who sold um, 7,000 AR-10s to Sudan in the early 1960s. Um, a quick brief note about that. There's another book that Sam Cummings did write. It's just like a small arms identification guide, and I just found something really neat in there, and I was like, I wonder if this is in there. So I looked up the AR-10 in that guide, and it's funny because as I'm reading it, Sam Cummings, uh, it says in there, like, yeah, the AR-10, blah, 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 talking about it. And it says, well, the AR-10 is uh, in use by, you know, this country, this country, this country, and Sudan. And I kind of chuckled at that because Sam Cummings, the author of the book, was the guy that sold the AR-10. So who better to know that it is in service with the Sudanese military than the guy who sold it to them, you know? So it's like you're kind of uncovering gun running across the world, basically. Essentially, and that's that. You know, that's part of it. And uh, unfortunately, in a lot of these places, like a lot of this stuff isn't public. It isn't talked about. Um, a lot of the deals, uh, a lot of the deals that go on are very, you know, under under uh, under wraps. Nations don't like to talk about. Gun manufacturers don't like to talk about it. We had uh, most recently there was a case in Kurdistan of uh, with the Kurds of a Canadian company called Nia Northeastern Arms 
based in, I think, Ontario or Alberta, I forget. Um, but Nia, our, Nia IRs were showing up with the Kurds. And, you know, I contacted Nia and asked, like, hey, would you be interested in talking about this? And they just said, no, we're not going to talk about this whatsoever. So this is the sort of response you get from a lot of companies that say, like, no, we don't want to talk about any of our sales um, overseas, especially to these areas. It's interesting the fact that you get end up with Canadian weapons in the hands of, you know, Kurdish fighters. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then the same, the same weapons are for sale on Iraqi um, Facebook groups on uh, black market small arms stuff. And you can see them right there. It's right there, Nia, Nia 15. It's a 8-inch uh, or 7-inch uh, AR-15 variant. This is something I've been interested in for quite some time. I know uh, Christian Trebert um, and a few others uh, wrote a piece for Foreign Policy a while ago about these online gun markets uh, and they're not deep web or anything like that. Like you said, they're just on Facebook. They're just on Telegram. Yeah, sure. So um, the deep market stuff isn't really a thing in the Middle East, mostly because there's no um, there, like in Europe. It's a, it's in Europe. It's a thing in the United States in the black you know the black gun market in the states. Uh, the illegal black market in the states is a thing. But that's because you can't really get away with selling guns on Facebook in the states illegally. Um, but in the Middle East, there's no, there's no, you know, um, cyber police. There's no, there's nobody in the law enforcement there that's going to go on Facebook and start cracking down. Um, if anything, the police are sometimes a part of this stuff and selling stuff on there themselves. I mean, you see like Iraqi government stuff. You see um, a big thing in Iraq is like Glocks. Like if you see one of the mantras in Iraq is if you see a Glock for sale on Facebook, you know, you probably know that comes from the Iraqi police or a contractor, but mostly from the police because there were something like tens of thousands of Glocks that were issued out to the Iraqi police. And that was uh, that, you know, the Glocks eventually got sold off or reported lost and then ended up on the market. Um, but yeah, so you don't see much dark web stuff in the Middle East. It's mostly uh, Facebook, uh, Telegram is a huge one, sometimes Twitter, there's occasional ones on Twitter, but Telegram and especially WhatsApp. WhatsApp is humongous because in WhatsApp you have groups. Like a WhatsApp group can only be 250 people, whereas a Telegram group, uh, essentially anybody can be added to a Telegram group most of the time, and a Telegram group can be unlimited. I was in a Telegram group that a friend of mine added me to just so I could have a look, and it was a Middle Eastern um, group where they were selling weapons and various other things, and I would just check it every now and then because I found it, you know, interesting. And one day, like, as Raqqa started to fall, I noticed all this camera equipment starting going for sale. And I just thought, I bet that's ISIS. <laughs> ISIS guys, like, selling their equipment, you know. It was heavy-duty stuff as well, you know. And there was, like, radio equipment, sound editing tools, all sorts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and some, and, uh, you know, every once in a while, you'll see something that'll just be like, wow. Like, this is a brand new whatever. And it's being it's it's ending up on this Telegram group, and that's where you ask the how the heck did that get here, um, sort of questions there. Um, but yeah, no, there's all sorts of crazy stuff being for sale. Um, in addition to sort of the um, uh, the uh, like the, the mundane, the normal stuff, which is mostly your Tokarovs, your Makarovs, your AKs, um, especially in in the Middle East. You know, you see a lot of Mausers. Um, what else do you see? Uh, some the very general, a lot of FALs. You see a lot of FALs, and that's left over from the 1960s, 70s, and 80s when you know a lot of these countries were very close allies with uh, with Belt with European countries in Belgium and Britain. That uh, that you know Belgium was making 
FAL contracts for these places. And what is that, sorry, FAL? FAL, so you'll probably know it as an SLR, self-loading rifle. Um, yeah, it's the British, uh, British uh, main service rifle from the 1960s about to when it was replaced by the SA-80 in the 1980s. It's funny, um, I, I, I've been covering like conflict and war for about five years now, and I've never learned to identify weapons. I don't know why, I just, I just never really got very used to it. Um, until this, this is something that might interest you. When I was with the, uh, I was filming with the PKK in Southeast Turkey when they were kind of doing their urban guerrilla uprising in 2015. And some of the, the youth all had like old AR-15s or like AK-74s, you know, like the, the shorter one with the prop. Um, but then when the, when the kind of adults turned up, they had like M16s, you know, brand new shiny looking things. And I just, I remember just thinking like, where the hell did you get that from? <laughs> exactly. Right. It begs, it begs the question. And they got them from Iraq where we supplied the Iraqi army with, with tens of thousands of them. Seriously. You think that's what it is? That's definitely one of the sources of supply. We're also supplying the Kurds, uh, right, right now with, um, with M16A2s. And stuff like that like some of that's getting in but if what your time frame that you're talking about 2014 2015 that stuff would have definitely been coming out of iraq um with di diverse supply stuff being diverted from being sent to the iraqi army and the iraqi national guard that makes sense actually because when the pkk came to the town we were in they turned up with uh, like a hilux van and there were no number plates on it and we were, i was like why are there no plates on your van and they're like uh we took it from Iraq <laughs> and I was like what do you mean they, we, you took it they're like we took it we wanted it we needed it we took it so I'm imagining you know someone lost their car and perhaps you know they had uh, connections to make people lose their weapons as well oh man that's that's funny yeah yeah I've, I've heard wow I've, I've heard so much about the Kurds it's especially when it comes to uh the, the the fighting that they were that they do and that they take part of and the small arms side of stuff because that's what I'm really interested in they're very very interesting group of fighters for sure yeah I mean the small arms side of that is interesting because a lot of their operations are with small arms especially the PKK the you know the fighters inside Turkey who you see these videos when they're fighting with Turkish soldiers and they literally creep up on the positions in the mountains within a few feet and just jump out with the rifle and just pap 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 start firing it's it's wild man absolutely there's a recent video that came out i think within the last month or two months of a turkish patrol uh where they wait this these two pkk guys literally wait until this turkish patrols five meters five to ten meters away from them and then they just start blasting them yeah um what should people be aware of right now in terms of the the gun markets in terms of kind of deals that we perhaps wouldn't know about who's supplying who who's supplying who so it depends on where you're looking and it depends on who's allied with whom so for example in if we look at central asia right now there's a big move within central asia because central asia has all this old soviet bloc you know warsaw pact stuff and a lot of the central asian countries all the stands you know kyrgyzstan kazakhstan tajikistan turkmenistan uh, uzbekistan they're all looking to modernize what they have and that is something that uh, is, is interesting because you're seeing a lot of modernization in terms of small arms um, coming over there. One thing that I can point out is Beretta, is, uh, Beretta in Italy. Is You're slowly seeing a lot of stuff with them in that uh, Beretta won a couple contracts recently with the Egyptian military to supply ARX-160s. Won a couple contracts with, uh, I think, 
Kyrgyzstan or Kazakhstan, I can't remember which one, supplying the same weapon, the same AR-160s there. An interesting thing about that is they're supplying AR-160s, which is a 5.5, which is a, it is a 5.56 assault rifle. Um, however, they are supplying them with 7.62 versions so they can use AK magazines. So this is a modern assault rifle that is actually being chambered and is capable to be used with the existing Soviet stock, which is all they have. They, so they can use their old AK magazines with that. Um, that's one thing to look at there. Um, looking, at, looking at Saudi Arabia, for example, engrossed in Yemen right now, um, who's selling who to Saudi Arabia? Saudi Arabia is making a lot of their own stuff. They're making a lot of G3s. They're, they're, um, it's either Military Industries Corporation or uh, MAC. Yeah, I think it's MIC. The Military Industries Corporation is the Saudi state-run defense armaments uh, group, and they make G3s. And they're just starting to make G36s. And they might also be making AKs from Russia, which uh, AKs, modern AKs chambered in uh, 762 by 39. So it's some of the, this older crowd again. What else? Uh, what else do you want to know about? Uh, about with who's getting what? Well, I guess, you know, there's a lot of quiet wars going on right now, which I'm very interested in. You know, there are conflicts that don't really get a lot of attention in the media. For example, Yemen. Um, there's a lot going on in Africa right now. And I've always been interested to think, like, where are these guys getting weapons from? Every now and then you, you'll just suddenly hear about this conflict and be like, really? They were getting weapons from there? For example... Um, there was a rumor, I don't know if it's true and I think it's not, but there was a rumor that Russia tried to deliver um, arms to the Anglophone, um, you know, rebellion in Cameroon, which just seems like, why? Like, why? But, you know, there is always a way to work it out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah. And another point with that is, is, like, you think of, okay, like Russia delivering stuff to uh, these, these, these rebels in the Cameroon, um, if you look at that, don't, don't look at so much as, is it actually Russia? Like, is this a like, state directive from the, like, is the, is, the national, is, the, is the equivalent to the National Security Council in Russia saying, all right, let's supply these folks? It's not often as much as that as it is maybe it's, you know, sections, smaller divisions that are doing their own thing with either within the Russian government or private arms dealers that are doing a lot of this and have somewhat of a permission or working in a sort of gray area. And it's not like a country directive sort of thing. For instance, the IRGC, um, the, you know, the Iranian the Islamic Republican Guard in, uh, in Iran, you know, we see... We see a lot of weapons being pushed from IRGC into places like Syria, into places like Lebanon, and we see a lot of stuff ending up there. Um, is, is that like an Iranian, is that coming straight from the Ayatollah saying, let's you know, distribute this stuff? Probably not, but this is one of their programs sort of thing. So is Iran like wanting to do this? Maybe, maybe not, we don't know. But is a component of the IRGC wanting to do this? Yes, absolutely, and that's something to take into account there. That's really interesting what you said about private uh, you know, arms dealers. I find that really interesting because, you know, we've all seen Lord of War. I'm pretty sure it doesn't quite go down like that. Yeah, no, from, from there, it, de it depends on the countries that are doing it. I mean, stuff like Iran, it's all state-run, obviously. There's no private arms dealers that are doing that. Um, but with the United States, for example, we see a lot of that. And a big thing we saw is Purple Shovel. 
there's that scandal that happened. Purple Shovel, what's that? Purple Shovel was this contracting company, the logistics company that I'm pretty sure they're, they, just, they just filed for bankruptcy recently. Um, they were a company that blew out of nowhere. They just they didn't exist one month, and then they existed with like a ten million dollars contract from SOCOM. I'm making up the figures here, but they just blew out of nowhere with these crazy huge contracts. And you can look at it in FedBizBoff or something. And that probably was somebody who got out of SOCOM in the U.S. military and said, "Hey, there's an in here that I know I can take advantage of. There's you know there's an urgent need, there's an urgent requirement, and I can get in on it." Um, and uh, they did it, and they realized they could provide a logistical effort with buddies or something, and threw this company together called Purple Shovel. And Purple Shovel delivered. Um, so essentially, SOCOM, you know, was supporting the Kurds and supporting various uh, groups in Syria, but they needed a way to arm these groups. So they're like, okay, well, we'll turn to U.S. private industry to arm these groups. And so one of the companies that they turned to was Purple Shovel. And Purple Shovel was the sort of in-between between getting arms from Eastern Europe, flying it, getting all the logistics down, and then flying it into Syria. One of the ways they did this was using a, uh, it was a company called Silkway um, from Azerbaijan, uh, from Bulgaria. Uh, wait, I, wait, hold on. Let, Silkway, let me, it was, Silkway, Bulgaria. Okay, yeah, no, Bulgaria. So Silkway used diplomatic, was under the guise of diplomatic uh, flights and workforce was contracted through SOCOM, Vice Purple was contracted with Purple Shovel, which the end, the end essentially was um, SOCOM that was wanting to get all this done. And Silkway was used to transport weapons from um, Bulgaria to various other spots, and then essentially going to Syria. You can see that there's you can see the flight manifest in some of the articles online, um, but they stopped in you know you can see they flight from Bulgaria to uh, Jerusalem you know or Tel Aviv and stopped for some refueling and then went on to somewhere else into Turkey. I don't think to Turkey, but um, you see Silk Way a lot in this, and so Purple Shovel was one of those. Um, and sort of the scandal happened when one of their employees died in Bulgaria when he got blown up by a, a, an obsolete RPG round or something, uh, or a grenade. I forget what it was. I think it was an RPG. Um, and that happened. And it was like, well, how, what's this American you know, citizen dying in, on an RPG range in Bulgaria? And that was Purple Shovel that employed him there. Um, one of the, interestingly enough, one of the, other, one of the other folks who did this one of the other contractors who did this in the States was a company in southern Indiana um, where I went up to them during SHOT Show of this year and I asked them, like, oh, I saw you guys were mentioned in this recent report about, uh, about uh, working with contracts uh, supplying the Syrian rebels and they instantly turned away from me and they didn't want to talk to me at all, which I thought was interesting. And what about um, these, you see these private military contractors everywhere how much do you know about them? Because they interest me. For example, you've got Wagner, that mental Russian uh, paramilitary in Syria, sending fighters all over the place. You know, I, I know there was fighters that were in Ukraine, you know, fighting against Ukrainians that are now in Syria and have died out there as well. I mean, there are others as well. What, what, how, how prevalent are they still? Because I know for a while they were quite big with Blackwater and what have you. So the, the, far, the overseas side of things, I can't really talk about much with them, um, apart from you know, the, what's common knowledge about Wagner and 
the, the, how, what the company's been doing. You, there's, most recently, you've seen, we've seen them show up in the Central African Republic. Let me just double check that. Um, there's something that came out with Wagner contractors that were in, um, in, in, um, in Africa that were showing up there. Um, but what I can talk about is the American side of it. How often are they used now? Because they have some incredibly dangerous ramifications, I think. Not all of them are doing terrible stuff, but rarely do you find that they're doing anything good. Essentially what they are, what contractors are is usually prior service uh, combat vets um, who get hired to do a job that the U.S. military will be, that the U.S. military would be too expensive to do, um, and that is easier on sort of taxpayers' dollars. They're, it's cheap. It's cheap labor essentially from the viewpoint of the U.S. government. So if we take you know where I was at the embassy in Kabul, uh, securing the embassy and guarding the embassy. Um, yeah, could a you know could you get a marine battalion or could you get a you know um, an army an army company to secure the U.S. embassy in Kabul and make it safe? Yeah, you absolutely could, and it would be very easy to do. Uh, financially wise, would it be easy? No, it wouldn't be easy because for every you know I don't know we have to look into look into OIF and OEF like what it costs, what it actually costs to for to maintain every soldier, every marine um, on the ground, and the cost is very astronomical when you start looking at that stuff. You know how you have to pay for their water, for medical supplies, for um, you know morale stuff, you have to pay for the logistics, you have to pay for the ammunition, all this stuff, if you look at the per soldier cost, it's a lot, a lot of money. And that's that would be very hard for the government or for the government or the State Department to sort of justify and say, yeah, this is you know, it's worth the uh, the ten million or twenty million dollars it takes to have a marine company or a marine battalion stationed at the US Embassy in Kabul for a while. Um, that's that's justifiable, and contractors, you're not paying you're not paying that amount per contractor. You're paying I don't know what the figures are, but you're paying something like half or a quarter of that per contractor. So it's a big cost saving measure. They're also easy to um, they're also easy to get rid of, and that's what the State Department loves about contractors is because they can hire and fire them at, on essentially a whim. You don't like with a, with a marine or a soldier, you can't exactly like if anybody in the government knows what I'm talking about. You can't. It's very hard to fire somebody in the government. Like I mean, to get to get kicked out of the Marine Corps, you literally have to like smoke a ton of weed or essentially murder somebody to uh, you know to get a dishonorable discharge right and that's gonna that's gonna get you out the quickest or a medical discharge and then like if you get wound, hurt or wounded or something now the government still has to pay for you because you get um, disability for the rest of your life but with a contractor if the state department or uh, some of the other agencies that that use contractors if, if the agencies don't like them um, they can simply fire them, and there's not. And within the contract, it even usually says so. Like they're essentially lawyer bulletproof, where it says you don't, you don't have to. Um, you know, if you get fired, it's like a no questions asked. You can't really contest that out of court. You can try, but you're going to lose both with the U.S. government and with um, and with the contracting company. It's a bit of a workaround for countries that do want to be involved in certain conflicts, perhaps, but don't want to officially deal with it. They they can they uh, they absolutely they absolutely can in a lot of cases. Um, yeah, it's very it's very easy it's very easy for the U.S. government to uh, to use contractors. 
Right. And something else I wanted to know as well, actually, I was thinking about this. You, you do a lot of historical work uh, on weapons and, you know, where they came from and that. But what about the future? Have you any idea or I guess any thoughts on what we might see on the battlefield in, say, the next 10 years? I think the biggest thing we're going to see is drone technology and unmanned aerial vehicle, U.S., whatever you want to call it. The, the, the use of drones... I think is going to not only change conventional warfare, but also change you know insurgent rebel uh, terrorist warfare um, from here on out, um, and how they're go- how they're going to incorporate that, and how they're going to make that more lethal and make it work for them, and using them not only as um, ISR as an ISR capability, um, but also with actual weaponizing them, like putting stuff on them, dropping grenades and stuff like that. And we've already seen that, you know, with ISIS in Syria. We've seen, we have seen, we have seen more development with drones at sort of a, if you want to call it a sort of squad or a platoon level in Syria. And when I say that, let's say, you know, a, a group of ISIS guys, you know, let's say like a 40, 50 or less implementing a drone and using that in, co- in collaboration with an SVID attack. We've seen more of that at that level than we have at the squad or platoon level in any Western or any NATO military. Let me give you an example, right? So the Marine Corps recently just changed its uh, organization to include a 13th guy in every single squad, Marine Corps, Marine Infantry, Company, uh, platoon wide. And that 13th guy is going to be a U.S. operator. The Marine Corps calls it U.S. uh, unmanned aerial system. And that that 13th guy is going to be a guy operating a drone on the battlefield. And he's going to be there right along with the squad leader. And he's going to be working. They're going to have these drones that are like, you know, they're, they're the ones that you just can just throw, a single person can just throw up, like the ones you buy at Walmart. But these are DOD and they're going to cost probably $100,000 per drone. Um, but <laughs> I don't know the prices, but everything always gets, everything always, the prices always go up with that. Do you think that's directly a response to you know, like you said, what we've seen in Iraq, for example, ISIS around Mosul attaching mortar rounds to commercial drones or guiding SUBIEDs to their target because they can see high. Um, do you think that's why they'll be doing that? It's not. I don't think it's a direct response to that. I think they kind of happened co- concurrently. I think it's because the uh, like the amount of development and just the amount of you know drones available and the commercial you know just the the fact the drone development in general all over the world has reached a point where it is now it has now been feasible to sort of bring these in for the point of view of isis using them it's been you know viable but also for the point of the dod using it it's also become viable um I think it's just a worldwide thing in that ISIS has realized it's now able to take advantage of this and you know the DOD has also realized okay these are at a price point these are um, at an endurance level these are at a point at which we can use it um, because the because the, what ISIS is doing with them is you know one specific event yes ISIS is like you know very doing a lot of advanced was doing a lot of advanced stuff with drone technology, but it was only happening in Syria. It wasn't popping up all over the world. Um, it's not like with you know the development of IEDs and pressure plate or remote IEDs, um, where you see 
almost concurrent happening, uh, concurrent development happening in Iraq and in uh, and in Afghanistan and then elsewhere as well. Like that's something like that's happening all over the place with drones. ISIS is sort of the biggest the biggest user of this stuff. Um, yeah, there's other there's other groups that are using them. Um, the Taliban have started to really incorporate them. Um, as mostly as like propaganda tools, uh, they'll you know they'll film a suicide bomber blowing something up from the air, and they'll use that in their propaganda footage. But they won't be directing that suicide bomber on the ground as he's going, as um, as we've previously seen with you know overhead flights, like directing these folks in. When I was talking to Hugo on the show about you know ISIS and their SVBIDs, it really became apparent to me that basically ISIS and any guerrilla unit could do this, can kind of create their own makeshift equivalent of like a US drone room. Obviously, they're not going to have the same kind of, you know, uh, technology, but they've got 10 guys stood away from the target. They've got a camera, they've got a drone up in the air, and they've got a guy running about with an SVB ID. You know, it's kind of the same thing, though. Yeah, yeah, it's very, uh, it's very similar. It's very similar indeed. Um... Yeah, it absolutely is. And so to, to also put this in perspective, like using it at the level that ISIS has been using it, I mean, so the Marine Corps has been using drones at, you know, the battalion and the regimental levels for, and the MU levels for probably about a decade now, but they just haven't been as very prevalent as much. Um, in 2014, we were using drones at the company level, and that was a company level asset where a company commander could say, okay, we want, you know, we're going to use these two drones that we have, and we're going to. The biggest thing that they were being used for then was to gain uh, PID or positive identification. Um, not to, and these, weren't, these drones weren't the sorts of things that you could like, take out on a patrol and just throw out with. Um, whereas that's sort of, that's some of the sort of stuff that ISIS is doing with that sort of thing, and that the Marine Corps is starting to um, bring into play at this point. Something I'm very interested in is homemade weapons. You know, for example, zip guns. Uh, the IRA had their own mortars called a doodlebug. Have you seen uh, much use, or have you come across many homemade weapons whilst doing this stuff for Salah Report? Yeah. So in Iraq and Syria, the, there is a huge, huge. Um, Homemade, or you can call it craft-produced, because when you when you say homemade, it makes it sound like you know you're working you're working on your kitchen table with you know a pair of pliers, right? Um, so sometimes sometimes we use uh, like craft-produced because then it's more like okay, you've upgraded from the kitchen table to maybe the the auto garage down the street, and you're using some welding techniques and stuff. Um, but um, so the biggest thing that we've seen with that in Iraq and in Syria is anti-material rifles. And the reason for that is the the suicide-borne vehicle IED threat. Um, And it's because these anti-material rifles are some of the only weapons that are capable of stopping some of these vehicles, either by shooting the tires or either trying to shoot the driver through one of the little window ports. Um, You know, trying to stop these vehicles can be very difficult with some of the other anti-armor stuff they have on the table, such as with an RPG. Like you think, oh, why can't you shoot an RPG at it? Well, you could try, and an RPG is one of the more inaccurate anti-material weapons out there, um, anti-armor weapons out there. Anti-material weapon means to basically something that can pierce the armor of another weapon or vehicle or whatever. 
Yes, essentially. But the uh, you know some places take that to the point of well you know you can't engage you can't engage a soldier with an anti-material weapon, but you can engage the gear on their belt, and that's material. So then there there's a way around it. Um. <laughs> um, but yes, correct. Anti-material being it's des- it's not designed for a human target. It's designed for a vehicle. A um, and originally, anti-material weapons were more for destru- destruction of sort of like um, uh, like a radar, like a radar system, like shooting the box at a radar system, or for EOD for trying to blow up explosives from a mile away. Like that's more of what it's designed for. Um, but it's upgraded to this, you know, being used against vehicles and moving vehicles, um, and in some cases, long-range sniping and then shooting through hardened cover that we're seeing in a lot of places in northern Syria with the Kurds, where they're in these urban and really far-off environments. Everything you do is focused around guns, around weapons. You're very knowledgeable about all this. But I wanted to ask, what's your opinions on the gun debates going on in America right now? Because you're American, right? What do you think? Because, you know, you've got these school shootings, all of this stuff. And then recently, Cody Wilson just had his 3D printed gun um, blueprints made illegal, which to me seemed pointless considering they're already out there. And like we've just been talking about, you can make a more useful homemade weapon or craft work weapon yourself. What do you think about it all? Um, the point of view of the craft produced, the homemade stuff, that is always going to exist. Um, it's not like everybody has a 3D printer in their living room. Um, and th- then maybe that might be sort of an issue with that. But like people are saying, oh, 3D printed guns are going to like make criminals much more whatever. Um, craft produced stuff has always existed. It will always exist. You know, this is always going to be a thing. Whether it's 3D printed or whether it's made out of a PVC pipe, it's going to. Be, you're dealing with the same, the same, the same, the same uh, thing there. Yeah, you can make a slam fire shotgun with two metal poles and a bit of welding. Like it's that simple. Yeah, exactly. You know, like this stuff is always going to be out there. So if pe- people are freaking out over 3D guns, uh, what, cr- criminals also improve as well, you know, like cr- criminals have generation, they generational and variational improvements on this stuff, like it's going to be that way. Um, as, oppo- as opposed to the, the gun stuff in the States and the political stuff, I mean, my, as far as myself, you know, I'm a, I'm a gun writer. I am, firearms and small arms have been a very critical and very important part of my life for a long time. My primary source of employment for the past several years has been the, has been the gun industry, whether it's writing for it, whether it's, um, well, pretty much just writing and making videos on YouTube and stuff. Um, that's, been, that's been my thing. You don't, you don't have to get into it if you don't want to, man. Don't worry. Don't worry. I, I was just curious. No, I'm you know, staunch Second Amendment supporter myself. I mean, I'm more interested in the stuff overseas, but I appreciate the stuff at home. No, definitely. I was only asking because it's interesting for me as a Brit because we don't have anything like what you guys have. You know, We need a license just for a shotgun. In fact, I think you need to let someone know if you have a pellet gun even. You know, it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of the other extreme. So for me, it's all very interesting to watch it from afar, you know. Um, what, what is the, what's the future for Salah Report? The future, the future for Salah Report is we really want to, I want to eventually, I want it to, I want it to expand. I want it to, I want to take the format off of, you know, what has been where I really started with my writing, which has been TFB, which has been the firearm blog. 
Um, where it goes, you know, it could have a YouTube channel like uh, like Forgotten Weapons does, like Military Arms Channel does, like what I do with TFB TV. I think that would be really cool. Um, it could go on into just being a sort of internet sort of blog style thing, writing about this stuff. But really the future is I want to expand it. I want to expand that community of folks that are writing for it. Right now we have an Armenian writer. We have an Egyptian writer. We have two Iraqi guys who've submitted stuff. We have an Iranian guy that's interested in submitting stuff. We have a couple Pakistanis. And really what I've wanted to create is sort of a you know subject matter expert database within all these countries and actually have like a writer from Algeria, from Morocco, um, from one of the, from all the stands, you know, actually have guys from this stuff and essentially just bring everyone together and then say, look, like cut the politics, cut the factional differences and everything, cut all this stuff out. We're just interested in the small arms and, and how these develop, how their their history is, what's going on now, that sort of thing. So I want, I would love it to come to the point where, you know, if someone sees a development coming up in Libya, for example, we can have a Libyan writer write and say, this is what's going on. And how do I know this? Well, because I'm in Libya and I understand everything that's happening here and I can, you know, have local contacts and that sort of thing. Um, where I want it to be an authority on everything small, on small arms related stuff, whether it's contemporary, you know, modern stuff. Um, developments or historical or cultural. I think what you just said there is very important about cut the politics out of this because I personally, I am very anti, I always say I'm anti-censorship. I hate censorship. And I've noticed within journalism in the last few years, especially, you will have your information censored if it doesn't tee up with a certain political outlook or, you know, something like that. And I'm, I'm saying, like, people ask, you know, I get criticized. I say, oh, you just put that out there. I'm saying the information is the information. It should not yeah. be skewered. It should not be limited because it might make certain group look bad or whatever. The information is in of itself worth having out there and that's it obviously you add context you talk about it you can analyze it but that doesn't mean it shouldn't be out there so i think what you said there is very important and that's why i like what you guys are doing you know i can go to your blog and i can go to your youtube look at it and i don't i'm not particularly pro guns or anti-guns but i can just find out what i need without having this constant moralizing a lot of journalism now has just become op-eds you know op op opinion pieces and it's, it's bizarre and they're presented as reports yeah, and, and, and on to add to what you're saying, um, but really to go off of what you're saying, let me just say that the, Im the importance of, like, because essentially what we're looking at with CELA report, with, you know, the other, the other groups I write for, uh, Armament Research Services with TFB, essentially what you're looking at is, you know, raw technical data and technical sort of, not intelligence, because intelligence is a finished product, but if, if you're dealing with this technical stuff and you're like, what is this gun? You know, you have to separate everything else. You have to separate the politics, the religious stuff. You have to separate all this stuff because you're dealing with a very technical topic. What is this gun? How did it get here? How is it being used? All this other stuff along those lines. And let me just say, like, I get criticized. And this is like, this is one of the things I face all the time is uh, I get called like, oh, you're an ISIS sympathizer, you're an ISIS reporter, like, because you're writing about the stuff that they use and the stuff that they have. And my point, look at this, is, look, these groups are doing terrible things. But until you can actually take what they have and actually analyze the weapons that they're using, 
you are never ever going to have an iota of understanding it, of being able to try and defeat it, of being able to even think about a strategy of defeating some of these terrible pla- and these terrible people in the world. And until you have a you know non, as you're saying, like a non-influenced you know viewpoint on it, you know until you have that, then you can't you can't proceed. You can't just and you can't just say like, oh yeah, ISIS, they're all horrible people. Yeah, let's just blow them up. Yeah, we know that, right? We know that. Like we know ISIS are horrible. I, I'm not one that believes in like complete objectivity within journalism. I think complete objectivity is psychopathy. To be honest, you know, yeah. you can't be neutral with ISIS. You can't be like, well, you know, they cut this guy's head off for a reason. No, like that's that's disgusting. However, yeah. you can say this is what they're doing and this is what they've got. That doesn't mean you're sympathizing and there is a really weird thing happening in journalism i know you don't specifically operate in the the circles of journalism and what i found very disturbing is this thing of just omitting information i don't mean to go on a rant but it's just i don't know there's a lot of censorship um and i think it's unfortunate i think we don't need censorship we just need to be a lot smarter in the way we kind of process the information you know yeah i totally i totally understand with what you're saying there i think that's great miles i think that's great uh where can people get hold of you where can they find uh all the work you do with Silla report um you can find me on well the, the website first and foremost um uh report.com s-i-l-a-h uh report and we have a Facebook outlet. You look for us on Facebook. We have a Twitter outlet, which um, on Twitter is Silao Report. That's mostly, that's mostly me um, writing those tweets and stuff. It's at Sila underscore report. And uh, the other, and so another avenue that we sort of work under is through, um, through TFB TV, through the YouTube channel. So I write for TFB. I am a TFB TV presenter on our YouTube channel. Um, but I... I try my hardest to include like the stuff that I talk about on uh, on the YouTube channel. I try to make videos about stuff that's relevant to MENA and Central Asia. And you'll see that I just recently I had a video about the Iraqi Al-Qadisiyah. It was, you know, an Iraqi sniper rifle under Saddam. Whenever I can, I try to push that as much as possible because I think the material is important to me and it is important to me and I think it needs to be covered more. Excellent. And I just want to apologize for constantly saying Salah when I meant to say Silla. <laughs> but, you know, I, I pronounced it wrong quite a lot. Thanks very much, Miles. That was excellent. No worries, man. So that was Miles of Silla Report talking about small arms and how he tracks them across the world, finding out how they end up in the hands of the fighters who use them and on the various gun markets that he goes to. Definitely check out Silla Report. It's S I L A H report.com it's very very interesting if you're into small arms and basically the history behind various different wars across the world this episode was sponsored by defensepost.com defense with an s check them out for all things popular front go to popularfront.co i just wanted to say i finally started a twitter account just for popular front i'm not really using it much but i figured i might as well start it that is at Popular Front CO, so kind of like the website. Uh, but for most things Popular Front, follow me on Twitter. That's Jake underscore Hanrahan, H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N. And if you want bonus content, including bonus episodes, video content, uh, we're even giving away stickers for certain tiers, go to patreon.com slash popularfront. Thank you very much to the $30 patrons. Without you lot, we wouldn't be able to do Popular Front once a week. Uh, I don't even know how often I'd be able to do it, to be honest. Maybe like once a month. Um, 
They are Aliame Leroy, Andrew Stover, Daniel Shearer, Joanne Stocker, Margaret Bowling, Teddy, Stephen R.D. Henderson, Ryan Sandercock, Cole Gannon, Joel Tambusi, L.H. Kjetil, and Zachary Hinch. Thank you all very, very much. Much appreciated. Uh, music in this episode, the intro was by Home, and the outro again was by Son of Old, which his SoundCloud can be found at soundcloud.com slash son dash of dash old if you can follow the youtube channel which is youtube.com slash popular front very soon we're going to be putting up a lot more video content uh, in the works we've got a let's play hezbollah game so the militant group hezbollah they have made a new video game and we've got a guy who knows all about it um, and he's going to be doing basically like a let's play of the hezbollah video game i think that'd be cool and interesting and also there will be a documentary that I'll be doing soon um, that should go ahead probably late August.